Historian Neil Ferguson explains we may be entering the 1970s again. So we examine the evidence. Joe Biden doubles down on his aggressive attacks on his political opponents, and Donald Trump responds, and Chile averts disaster. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Thousands of my listeners have already secured their network data. Join them at expressvpn.com slash Ben. That's all the news in just one moment. First, let me remind you that you are paying way too much for your cell phone right now. All that coverage, that's costing you a fortune with Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. They're taking way too much of your money every month because they keep telling you, you need unlimited data. Well, do you really need unlimited data or do they just need unlimited amounts of money from you? You need Pure Talk. Pure Talk gives you a myriad of choices so you can choose the data plan that's right for you, whether that's two gigs per month or an unlimited plan with a mobile hotspot. By switching over to Pure Talk, the average family of four is saving over 75 bucks every month. Customers are realizing they simply don't need as much data as they thought. Plus, Pure Talk makes it easy to find the right plan for you and your family. They're a veteran-owned company with a customer service team based right here in the United States. They make the switch from your current provider really easy. It won't take you more than 10 minutes. It's well worth the savings. Join the hundreds of thousands who are making the switch to Pure Talk today. Plus, this month, when you switch over to Pure Talk, you pay for one month, get the second month for free. I've been endorsing Pure Talk for two years. They've never made an offer this big. Just go to puretalk.com, choose your plan, enter code Shapiro for this special offer. That's puretalk.com, enter code Shapiro, get your second month for free. For a lot of Americans, me included, What's happening right now in history, global history, American history, feels like an inflection point. It feels like we're on the precipice of something, and it's not clear exactly what we are on the precipice of. Are we on the precipice of a sort of global recovery where the West regains its strength? Are we on the precipice of a really chaotic and tumultuous time? Are we on the precipice of the 1910s, the 1930s, the 1970s? Kind of unclear what the historical precedent is. Well, historian Neil Ferguson did a fascinating interview over the last couple of days that is well worth watching. It's an interview that he that he did talking about the situation of the globe. Ferguson has written a number of really important books. He wrote a great book about the history of finance called The Age of Money. He has a great two-part history of the Rothschild family. He wrote books on the First World War and the Second World War. He's one of my favorite historians. And in this interview, he explained where he thinks we are on, in history. And he, he says that he thinks that the globe is on the verge of the 1970s, that we're all sort of happy talking past the, the reality of the situation. Here he was. The ingredients of the 1970s are already in place. Uh, the monetary and fiscal policy mistakes of last year, which set this inflation off, are very like the mistakes of the late 60s. And then, as in 1973, you get a war, uh, except that this war is lasting much longer than the 1973 war. And so the energy shock that it's causing is actually going to be more sustained. So the question that I'm asking myself is, yeah, it, it looks a little bit like the 1970s, but are we sure it's not going to be worse than that? I mean, most people, when you have this conversation, kind of assume it can't be that bad. and They can't really envision double-digit inflation in the U.S., but we're already there with the U.K. The number of countries with double-digit inflation in the world is already north of 40, and it will soon be a higher number than that. And so I ask myself, why shouldn't it be as bad as the 1970s? Why shouldn't it actually be worse? Hey, that was Neil Ferguson speaking to CNBC at the Ambrosetti Forum in Italy. So if you look back at the history of the 1970s, what you're talking about is significant price shocks, wage controls in the United States, serious stagflation, a lot of global foreign policy turmoil, ranging from the detente that the United States actually had with China to conflict between China and Russia to the chaos in the Middle East. Uh, the, the 1970s were a very, very bad time in American history. They were then followed by the 1980s, which, which were a much better time in American history. But 
What I wonder is whether we're entering the 70s or, as Neil Ferguson says, something significantly worse. I want to quote Neil Ferguson about the lead up to World War One. This is not a suggestion that we're about to enter World War One. The conditions, as we're about to see, don't quite apply. But some of the factors that led to the global cast of World War One, where everybody was sort of sanguine about how everything was going, well, it's going to be OK. I mean, after all, these countries aren't going to go to war. Everything will be fine. High levels of globalization, high levels of travel, high levels of intercultural exchange. And the, the idea, if, if you went back to 1908 and you asked people, is there going to be a global world war in 1908? The answer is everybody says no. The truth is, even in 1914, if you ask most Europeans whether there was going to be a global world war, everybody was going to say no. In fact, as Ferguson talks about in his book, The War of the World, he says that if you look at the bond markets, like on the eve of World War One, even the people who had their money in the investments we're saying, no, there's not going to be a war. I mean, we're going to avert this thing. He says that there are a few things that led to the sort of global conflict that you saw in World War One and World War II, does Ferguson in his book. He says this, three things seem to me necessary to explain the extreme violence of the 20th century, and in particular, why so much of it happened at certain times, notably the early 1940s, and in certain places, specifically Central and Eastern Europe, Manchuria, and Korea. And understand that for Ferguson, World War One and World War II are essentially the same war, that one basically bled into the other. This is how most historians see World War One and World War II, not as two distinct wars, but essentially a European 30 years war second time around. Quote, these may be summarized as ethnic conflict, economic volatility, and empires in decline. By ethnic conflict, I mean specifically the breakdown of sometimes quite far advanced processes of assimilation. By economic volatility, I mean the frequency and amplitude of changes in the rate of economic growth, prices, interest rates, and employment with all the associated social stresses and strains. By empires in decline, I mean the decomposition of the multinational European empires that had dominated the world at the beginning of the century and the challenge posed to them by the emergence of new empire states in Turkey, Russia, Japan, and Germany. And we should go through each of those factors because as you see, not quite to the same extent, a lot of these sort of forces are breaking loose today. So in just one second, we'll get into each of these factors that Neil Ferguson talks about with regards to the chaos of the early 20th century. First, let's talk about how you rest. Okay, so you've heard about me talking Helix Sleep before. I mean, Helix Sleep is the mattress that I rely upon to get me my rest. But it's not enough to have just a great mattress. You also have to have great sofas. And we're talking all form. All form sofas are great. Helix launched a new company. It's called Allform. They're making the best sofas in the game. Allform sofas are American-made, easy to assemble, scratch and stain resistant, stylish and comfortable. Allform sofas are modern yet timeless seating pieces that come in a variety of sizes, shapes, and configurations. They're easily customizable. They cost a fraction of what you would pay in traditional stores. They're designed to be flexible and adaptable. Allform sofas grow with the way you live. The Allform sofa collection has got everything from armchairs and loveseats to an eight-seat sectional, so you can find the perfect piece for any space. Plus, all form sofas are shipped directly to your door. They can be assembled in just a few minutes. No tools necessary. And if getting a sofa without trying it in store sounds a little risky, you don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. All Form's durable, high-quality sofa is so well-made, it offers a lifetime warranty option, so you got nothing to lose here. Head on over to allform.com slash Ben. Allform is offering 20% off all orders right now for our listeners. Again, that's allform.com slash Ben. Step up your sofa game today. So ethnic conflict, this idea that, that there were ethnic groups that were living amongst larger ethnic groups, and that as nationalization took over for empire, you started to see extraordinary stress inside nation states about their minorities. You're seeing this happen in Europe with regard to, for example, Muslim immigration into Europe. You're starting to see this in the United States with regard to a lot of these sort of intersectional racial and ethnic tensions that you've seen rising in the United States. When it comes to economic volatility, one thing that Ferguson points out is that economic volatility that generally leads to social instability, it, it doesn't have to be in a context of Great Depression. It can also be in the context of just economic dislocation, of radical changes in the economy that no one sees coming. So for example, this kind of shock that we saw over the period of COVID followed by this period of severe inflation, 
the radical movement away from an industrialized economy in the West to a service economy in the West, all these sorts of things are major economic shocks to the system. And when you look at radical changes, objectively speaking, in economic growth rates and prices and interest rates, what you're seeing is people being whiplashed around. This makes people very uncomfortable and more likely to look for authoritarian figures to lead them through. And when he talks about empires in decline, and we don't tend to think of the world as filled with empires these days, but the truth is there's still a fair number of empires in the world today. In fact, you'd have to say that there are at least four empires in the world today. The United States, effectively speaking, is an empire. We may be a benevolent empire. We may be a liberal empire, but we are definitely an empire. If you see the number of places where the United States has troops, the answer is over 100 countries. We have troops all over the world. We have places that, that we help to, to prop up. We have systems that we help to fund. Right? The United States is just as much of an empire in its own way, not quite the same as the British Empire, where we actually had a colonial outposts in India that were actually ruling the place. But... The United States is a is a quasi-empire, the likes of which we haven't seen since the British Empire. You have the Russian Empire. You know, the Russians have always thought of themselves as an empire. And if you look at the vast territorial expanse of Russia and the fact that now they are attempting to take over places like Ukraine again, Vladimir Putin certainly sees himself as an imperial force. China is an empire. Outside of China, we like to think of China as a sort of unified country, a unified bloc. If you look at the history of China, there's always been inter-ethnic conflict in China, a lot of tribes in China. The Chinese empire is extraordinarily expansive. And then the EU is effectively an empire. We can talk about the fact that the European continent has a bunch of independent nations that are no longer at war with each other. But the simple fact is that the EU overall, as a, as a trading block, as an economic block, and as a polity, because people tend to work in concert inside the EU, that's effectively an empire on its own. Now, these are not colonialist empires the same way we had in the late 19th century, early 20th century. You don't see, for example, colonial outposts in Africa. You don't see, as I say, European outposts in India. That's not a thing you see. But the idea that you have these broad, expansive, powerful countries with reach beyond their own borders, there's no question that that exists. And right now, you are starting to see the weakening of these various empires. And what replaces them is not quite clear at this point. Right? There's been a lot of talk in the United States about the possibility of, for example, civil war, the possibility of people breaking apart. At the very least, the possibility that the states become significantly more powerful and the federal government becomes significantly weaker as Americans have less and less in common. You see in the EU with Brexit, you see with the inability to actually foster a, a common economic system because Greece doesn't operate the same way as Germany. You've seen nationalist stressors against the EU's sort of economic empire. In China, there's significant stresses inside the Chinese government, which we'll talk about in just a second. And obviously in Russia, you see a dramatically weak economy, bad demographics, and extraordinarily aggressive foreign policy. So in other words, a lot of the forces that tend to militate in favor of global conflict are in play. And I think it's worthwhile to, to look at some of the areas of, of danger, like where, where it looks like not just economic breakdown and and global economic discontent, which tends to lead, again, to the rise of authoritarian leaders, both right and left. But it's important also to look at the comparative power structure of the globe. When, when we get closer to economic parity, for example, between one empire and another, sometimes that tends to raise the risk of conflict. When one empire goes to sleep, which was the story with the British Empire in the late 19th century, early 20th century, things tend to get really bad. There are a couple of ways that you stumble yourself into war. One is you have an ambitious country that's attempting to take over for another country, uh, to supplant another country, which is sort of what, what happened with Germany in World War I and World War II. The second way, and usually these are combined, is that the dominant empire goes to sleep at the switch, and this incentivizes challenging countries to actually go for it. Just as you would see in a pack of primates where the alpha is challenged, 
this tends to happen in global politics as well. So I want to look at a couple of factors here to kind of assess where we are historically speaking. I want to look at GDP by country so we can see where we are vis-a-vis historical precedent and military spending by country. Because the truth is that when we talk about global economic power, we talk about global hegemony for the United States, everything is comparative. Everything is relative. This is why when I talk about, for example, America's climate change policy, I always say we're not doing this in a vacuum. What is China going to do? What is Russia going to do? This is why when we talk about the economics of the United States, I have always said and will continue to say that economics, the economic strength of the United States is what backs our global power. And if we hamper ourselves, we hamstring ourselves, we're not doing that in a vacuum. These things have externalities. So let's go, I want to look at three critical periods in world history right now, looking at these factors, GDP by country and military spending by country. And as you can see, these two things are very connected. And when there is a challenge to the global hegemon, or or at least to the leading power, what you end up seeing is war. And it's starting to look more like that than not like that these days in in, in 2022. In just one second, I want to get into some actual stats and charts about GDP and military spending. It gives you a little bit of historical context for where we are right now. First, speaking of where we are right now, the national average interest rate on credit cards is over 19%. It could be on the rise again. So now would be a really good time to consolidate your debt. If you're looking at the future of the economy and you're a little worried, the thing you can't afford is to get behind the eight ball on that credit card debt. So why not figure out a way to get a credit card consolidation loan from a Lightstream? It can help you pay off your credit cards and lock in that low fixed interest rate. Rates start at 5.73% APR with auto pay and excellent credit. Plus, the rate is fixed, so it's never going to increase over the life of the loan. You can get a loan from five grand to $100,000 without any fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream thinks that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. That's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, you can apply right now, get a special interest rate discount, save even more. The only way to get that discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Shapiro. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash Shapiro. Subject to credit approval rates range from 5.73% APR to 19.99% APR include 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit terms and conditions apply. Officers subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Shapiro for more information. So the three periods we're going to look at are the period immediately preceding and then in the middle of World War I, the period immediately preceding and in the middle of World War II, and then the period from 1966 to the end of the Cold War. And then finally, we'll look at, at the modern period. So we're going to look at three and then the modern period. So let's start by looking at the period leading up to World War I. So this is the top countries by GDP as of 1910, right? Right before World War I. And what you see is in terms of the global economy, the United States is far and away the leader in terms of GDP by country. And as you see, Germany is number two, right? Germany is growing. And then you see war breaks out. And when war breaks out, the United States just leaps far ahead of the others because they are all depleting their GDP to go to war with one another. But if you go back to the beginning of this, right? Go back to 1910 for just one second. If you go back to 1910 for just one second, what you see here is that the British economy is the strongest, right? You're looking because it's the British Raj and the United Kingdom, right? Places ruled by Britain are far and away the globe's largest economy. Not far and away, I mean, challenging the United States. Basically, they're at parity. If you look at the British Raj and the United Kingdom, those combined look like the GDP of the United States. Germany, however, was larger than the United Kingdom just in pure terms of GDP. So Germany has now risen and is challenging for supremacy on the continent. Germany is far outpacing France, for example. And then when you look at the combined power of the powers that were about to go to war, you look at Germany, you look at Austria, Hungary, you look at Italy, you look at Japan. When, when you look at these countries, you're starting to see something that looks a lot more like parity. There's a, a lot of close competition. And so what Germany is thinking is 
if I'm impoverished by one of the surrounding powers, if Austria-Hungary looks at Russia and says, I'm, I'm surrounded by an imposing power in the East, I got to go to war now because otherwise I'm going to lose the opportunity to go to war. And that's exactly what you see. And by the end of World War I, the only country basically left standing, economically speaking, and again, you can fast forward in time here, by the time you hit about 1919, the United States is just blowing everybody else away because they've all ruined themselves in war. You can see that the, the UK, the British Raj, all of these are dropping relative to the United States. The United States continues to grow during the war. By the time you hit 1916, the United States is basically doubling the next country. By the time you hit 1919, you're looking at the United States with a, an advantage over every other country in terms of GDP by a factor of about three. So what ends up happening here is that the country that benefits is the country that stays out of it, right? The United States enters very late in the war. But the United States, again, was started as the dominant economic power. Now, if you look at military spending in that same period of time, you look at the military spending, 1910 to 1919, this is also why you see World War I breaks out, right? World War I breaks out because look at that spending in 1910. Almost sure parity between the Russians, the UK, the Germans, the United States, and France, right? They are all within just a small margin of one another. And in the buildup to World War I, what you will see here is that the Germans start building up pretty dramatically. I can play the video. So the Germans, the, the UK starts to, starts to challenge the Germans in terms of military spending. The Russians then really start building up. The Germans, out of fear of the Russians, really build up. Right? And now you see the Germans are just outpacing everybody. The UK ramps up because the UK has the power, economically speaking, to challenge the Germans as the war goes on. Now you can see, again, where is the United States here? The United States way down at the bottom because the United States is not involved in the war. Now watch what happens when the United States joins the war. Boom. <laughs> okay, look at the United States. It's crazy, right? Economic power means global power, right? Economic power, look, look at that. It's insane, right? By 1919, the United States is just far outweighing everybody. By 1918, the United States is just blowing everyone else out of the water in terms of military spending. And by the way, uh, a thank you to ranking charts. That's this YouTube account for putting together these charts. These are beautiful charts. So the United States, by the end of World War I, is just blowing everybody else out of the water. So what does this say? It says, when there is a misimpression of global parity, then war is possible. And when war breaks out, the country with the strongest economy tends to win. You're about to see the same thing with regard to World War II. So let's fast forward to 1935 to 1946. So here's the GDP by country. Okay, in 1935, as you see, the United States is far out ahead in terms of GDP, but the UK is second. Okay, as we move closer to war, look at the UK, look at the United States jumping out ahead. The UK is dropping and Germany is rising. By the time you hit 37, 38, Germany is now the number two economy on planet Earth. The UK is behind. Okay, this means Germany feels like it's got to go. War breaks out. All of a sudden, the United States jumps ahead because everybody else is fighting each other. By the time you hit the end of the war, the United States is so far ahead, you can't even see the other countries in the rearview mirror. Right? The United States is just way the hell ahead because everybody else has wrecked themselves in war. The United States is now clearly the global hegemon by this point in time. Again, the United States is uniquely well-placed because we are not part of the European continent, so we didn't have to get involved in that war until significantly later. But what led to the war partially is Germany thinks, okay, we got to go. Now, you can see this by military spending during that same period as well. And this is kind of fascinating. So look at the military spending. So Nazi Germany is threatened by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is, um, is spending more money than uh, anybody else. The Nazis are second. The UK is way the hell down. In this particular chart in 1935, the Nazis are spending more than twice as much as the UK is on, on military spending. The United States is spending only about half as much as Nazi Germany. The Soviets are really far ahead. So when the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is signed, 
and you have the Soviet Union, the Nazis on the same side, that is why Nazi Germany goes. I mean, Nazi Germany is like, okay, well, we're never going to get a better time than this. I mean, we've signed this agreement. The two leading military powers in terms of spending on planet Earth are in the same corner. And then meanwhile, you've signed an agreement with Japan not to attack the Soviet Union. Remember, the Soviet Union and Japan, Russia and Japan had gone to war in 1905 before the Soviet Union. Anyway, you can see the top countries by military spending during this period, right? Soviet Union way out ahead, Nazi Germany second. Now, as you will see, economics always wins, okay? Because military power is a reflection of economics. So as you will see, during World War II, the United States is about to just do exactly what it did during World War I. Once the U.S. gets involved, the United States jumps way the hell ahead of everybody. So Nazi Germany ramps up the spending. Look at the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany in 1935, 36. Look at that. They are way ahead. I mean, they're, they're just dominant in terms of military spending. The UK is spending, but not nearly at the same rate as the Nazis and the Soviets. The UK ramps up because the UK still has a powerful economy, but they can't reach the spending level of Nazi Germany. You know, France gets taken out of the war. Vichy France is now effectively not even, look at the United States get involved in 1941. Watch how fast the United States ramps up. It's just amazing. The power of economics, gang. When you have a strong economy, you are capable of ramping up in times of war. By the end of the war, the United States is spending four times as much, seven times as much as the next greatest power. The UK is able to spend at high rates. By 1946, you see the Soviet Union beginning to challenge the United States. We'll get into more on where the United States stands in sort of global historical perspective with regard to economic strength and military strength in just one second. First, we pay hundreds of bucks per year to protect our homes, our cars, even our phones. Too many of us are not taking the steps we need to protect our families' finances. You need life insurance because if there is one thing that is sure in life, it is indeed death. Why get covered right now? Well, having life insurance through your job might not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. If you leave your job, your life insurance policy doesn't even go with you. If you're worried about price, you can make it easy to compare your options from top companies with Policy Genius. They can help you make sure you're not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage you need. Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace that makes it easy to compare quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in one place in order to find your lowest price. It could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Options start at just 17 bucks per month for $500,000 of coverage. Go to policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Get personalized quotes in minutes. Find the right policy for your needs. The licensed agents at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. They're on hand throughout the entire process, help you understand your options so you can make decisions with confidence. Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance. They've placed over $150 billion in coverage. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees. They don't sell your private information to third parties. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. Okay, so those are two periods to look for. So what led to World War II? Kind of something similar that led to World War I. A feeling that, economically speaking, there are rising powers that could challenge the global hegemon, in this case, the British Empire, and, uh, and a feeling that military spending was ahead of its opponents. And now let's look at the 1970s. This is the period that Neil Ferguson is talking about. Right? He says that we're about to repeat the 1970s. So if you look again, at the global chaos that took place in the 1970s, the United States is well ahead of any other country in terms of GDP in 1966. But because the United States decided that it was going to hamper itself in terms of wide, vast spending on social programs and inflationary policies, it basically undercut itself economically. So here are the top countries by GDP. You can see the United States is, is more than doubling the Soviet Union, which is number two. And in this particular period, the only two countries you really need to watch are the United States and the Soviet Union. So here, because this is the middle of the Cold War, here is the top countries by GDP. We're going to watch this chart as it goes from 1966 to 1991. It's really kind of fascinating. So the United States is still leading the Soviet Union in 1967 by a heavy margin. Soviet Union is actually falling behind. 
And then you're going to start to see things sort of reverse. Right? We hit 1970, and suddenly Japan is creeping up. Japan is starting to drink the United States' milkshake in terms of manufacturing. The Soviet Union still is stagnating. But you're about to see that change at least a little bit. The United States is still way ahead, but Japan is starting to gain. Now Japan is starting to climb above the Soviet Union in terms of economics. The United States, again, still well ahead. This is why war did not break out, because nobody has an opportunity. Okay, Japan is still gaining. Japan is still gaining. The United States, well ahead of everybody else throughout the 1980s. And this continues all the way up until 1991, when the Soviet Union drops off the map. In 1991, the Soviet Union basically ceases to exist. By 1987, the Soviet Union is below the UK, Italy, France, West Germany in terms of its economic power. And by the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union, economically speaking, doesn't exist. Japan is the largest challenger to the United States. Now, if you go back and you look at the actual military spending during this period, it just shows you why the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. You can see the economy there. The Soviet Union was never even a remote challenge for the United States. Look at their military spending. The Soviet Union could not afford it. 1966. The United States is outspending the Soviet Union by approximately 15%. Okay, as this ramps up, you're going to see the Soviet Union try to keep up with the United States, despite the fact that its economy is nowhere near the economy of the United States. So here we go. This is the military spending. The U.S. is jumping ahead by the late 60s because of the Vietnam War. So the United States is spending an awful lot of money in Vietnam at this particular period in time. Look at the Soviet Union now gaining on the United States as you enter the late 1960s. And this is going to continue throughout the 1970s to the point where the Soviet Union is actually spending as much as the United States, right? By 1971, the Soviet Union is now the number one military spender on planet Earth. This continues for years, 1972, 1973, 1974, right? And this is going to continue for years and years and years until you hit the 1980s. In the 1980s, the United States actually sees the Soviet Union as a wartime threat. Look at, look how far ahead the Soviet Union is by 1977. It's spending 50% more on military than the United States is, which is kind of amazing, again, considering that the United States economy at this point is a radical, is a radical portion ahead of the Soviet Union in terms of economic spending, in terms of GDP. 1981, Reagan comes into office. You see the United States begin to ramp up that military spending. The United States is now challenging the Soviet Union. We're going to bankrupt the Soviet Union by forcing them to continue to spend more money than they have. I mean, look at, look at how much money they're spending. They're spending $267 billion, $270 billion. I mean, by this point, remember, by 1986, the United States has such a greater... By 1987, the Soviet Union is spending as much money. 1988, the Soviet Union is spending as much money on the military as the United States is. And then you can see they can't keep that up, right? They just collapse. And that is just an effect of the GDP, right? The GDP of the Soviet Union could not keep up that spending. The United States can indefinitely. And that is why the Soviet Union collapsed. Their economy could not keep up with the economy of the United States. And so they had to collapse. They, they just never had the economic power to keep up with the United States. In retrospect, all this looks kind of inevitable. That wild imbalance between Soviet military spending and, and Soviet GDP couldn't keep up. Okay, so now let's look at the current period. Which of these periods does it look most like? Does it look like the 1910 period? Does it look like the 1935 period? Does it look like the 1966 period? So, here is the global GDP. These are, these are the, the countries by GDP starting in about 2007. So the United States is way out in front, right? The, so the United States has about $14 trillion in GDP as of 2007. The number two country is Japan. As you're going to see, Japan goes into an area of stagnation. It's then Germany and then China, right? In this particular chart, you're going to want to watch China because China is about $3 trillion in GDP. And China, you know, continues to be 
a, a global threat. You'll see why China is, con- is, is the chief global threat to the United States here. So here is, here is the top countries by GDP as of 2007 and moving forward. Look at China grow. And the United States continues to grow, but slower than China is growing. China is about to overtake Japan in about 2009. Look at China continues to, to ramp up its economy. Now it's half the size of the American economy. Right by 2014. By 2015, it's about two-thirds the size of the American economy. Okay, China starts to starts to waver in 2016, 2017, 2018. But by the time we hit modern day, China is about $14 trillion. The United States is about $21 trillion. The EU, by the way, is about $17 trillion, the combined EU. We'll get to more on this in just one moment. First, let's be real. French fries, they're the only good vegetable. But Unfortunately, they're not healthy. They're bad for you. Well, balance of nature, fruits and veggies are the most convenient way to get whole food ingredients every day, like the actual vegetables that they count toward you know, what you should be eating. Balance of nature uses an advanced cold vacuum process that encapsulates fruits and veggies into whole food supplements without sacrificing those natural antioxidants. The capsules are completely void of additives, fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or added sugar. The only thing in balance of nature's fruit and veggie capsules are, you know, like the fruits and the veggies. Right now, my listeners can get 35% off their first order, and they'll also get a free fiber and spice supplement. Balance of Nature's Fiber and Spice Supplement is a revolutionary fiber drink with a unique blend of 12 spices and whole foods. I'm flying pretty much constantly for the last few months. Gotta tell you, I really rely on Balance of Nature. There's never been an easier way to make sure you're getting your daily dose of fruits and veggies. Experience Balance of Nature for yourself today. Go to balanceofnature.com, use promo code Shapiro for 35% off your first order as a preferred customer, plus get a free bottle of fiber and spice. That's balanceofnature.com, promo code Shapiro for 35% off that first preferred order, plus that free bottle of fiber and spice. So what we have is something that looks a lot closer to parity economically speaking, than the Russians really ever came to the United States. But there's a problem. If we go back to those factors that we are talking about with regard to Neil Ferguson, the challenge with empires, right now there are internal challenges in, for example, the Chinese empire and internal challenges in the West. And so the question is going to be whether the United States wishes to repeat the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, which at least has a good outcome because we just outcompete everybody. Remember, the 1980s did happen. The 1970s were followed by the 1980s. So if Neil Ferguson, what he says is right, that we're about to enter the 70s, then maybe we get an 80s coming out the other end of this. Or is this going to look more like the British Empire circa 1910 or the British Empire circa 1935, a leading economic power that basically loses its way and gets hollowed out by a competitive power, even if that competitive power like China goes down? Now, the problem here is that China, again, they they look a lot like Nazi Germany, frankly, not just because they're a fascist state that that does human rights predations against its own people, but because China is, to the outward world, a strong state that has internally actually got some very serious problems, and they they may have to go now, right? This is the possibility of actual war. There's a really good piece over at the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace by a guy named Michael Pettis talking about Chinese economy is from April and he talks about the fact that the Chinese National Bureau of Statistics is releasing GDP numbers that look really bad. Right? China's GDP numbers are starting to decline. So you've started to see this radical growth in the same way that you saw German radical GDP growth leading up to World War II, for example. China had radical GDP growth, but now it looks like they're about to stall out. And the big problem for China is, again, because they are a state, they look a lot like actually the, the German national economy. The German Nazi economy was a state-run form of mercantilism. Basically, the government worked in concert with corporations in order to push state goals. That looks exactly like the Chinese economy these days. And China has extended itself extraordinarily in terms of debt. China's debt to GDP ratio 
is extraordinarily high. We are talking about a, jet, a, a debt to GDP ratio that exceeds 250%. No one's talking about this sort of stuff because there's so many people in the West who admire the way that China runs its economy because there are a lot of people in the United States who are very much in favor of centralized power over the economy. But China has a real problem on its hands. It's about to stall out because they've spent so much money on boondoggle projects. So what exactly is China going to do? Well, according to this piece over Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, there are basically five paths China's economy could take going forward. One, China can stay on its current path, keep letting large amounts of non-productive investment continue driving the country's debt burden up indefinitely, which means economic stagnation, which means it looks like the Soviet Union in the 80s. Second, China can reduce the large amount of non-productive investment on which it relies to drive growth and replace it with productive investment in forms like new technology. China can, can figure out how to, uh, how to actually invest properly, which would mean capitalism, which they're not going to do. Three, China can reduce the large amount of non-productive investment on which it relies to drive growth and replace it with rising consumption, which would mean privatization of assets, meaning China could allow more of its people to have more money so they could drive consumption, which would drive innovation. They're not going to do that because if they allow for that sort of thing, that could create an actual nascent middle class that's a threat to it politically. Fourth, China can reduce the large amount of non-productive investment on which it relies to drive growth and replace it with a growing trade surplus. In other words, drive up manufacturing. But the problem is that they already have a massive trade surplus. There's not that much further they can go. And finally, China can reduce the large amount of non-productive investment on which it relies to drive growth and replace it with nothing. In other words, stop taking out debt, in which case growth would necessarily slow sharply. Well, if that happens, China is likely to feel that it needs to extend itself in other ways. And this is what you see when you look at the chart of military spending from about 2007 on. So here's military spending by country in the period 2007 to 2020. Look how far out the United States is, right? And this is what you need to do. If you, were, if you are a global hegemon, the way the United States is, the same way that the United Kingdom was circa 1910, you need to spend like the United States is spending right now. We can talk all we want about overextension of the United States. We can talk about where we need to have troops. But the fact is that if you wish to retain global peace with the United States as the, as the hegemon, without significant war between empires, then you're going to have to have this sort of advantage in terms of the spending. So look at this chart. In 2007, the United States is spending literally 10 times its competitors. Second is the United Kingdom. Look at China. So China starts to grow as of 2007, 2008. So China's entire perspective up till that period would be grow our economy, and then we'll do the, the military spending. Look how China's ramping up its military spending. Now, it's not even close to what the United States is spending. But remember, China's a regional power, not a global power. So China doesn't need to really challenge the United States as far as spending in, for example, Russia. Look at the next two powers, China and Russia, right? Russia is an incredibly weak economy. China is not nearly as weak. United, look, look at China, ramp that up, right? China is obviously militaristic. China obviously is, is looking for a launching point because they can't keep this up indefinitely. The great fear for China is that it looks like the Soviet Union in the 1980s, which may force it into the position of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Look at, look at China ramp up that military spending. Now, China's spending you know, about one-third of what the United States is spending, and China does not have to control the United States in Europe. China does not have to control the United States when it comes to Africa, for example, or the Middle East. China just has to control the area around it and expand that, that certain circle of power. So this is why people like Neil Ferguson are deeply worried, not just that we are headed into the 1970s, but that China could make a move on Taiwan because they basically have no choice but to do so. Meanwhile, Russia is doing the same thing. So if you're talking about a time of collapsing empires, Russia is extraordinarily economically weak. Right? Russia is spending a lot of money on its military because Russia has no money for anything else. And that is why Russia right now has to win in Ukraine. Right? Russia has to, has to ramp up the, the energy crisis in Europe, which is why they just closed down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They have to come up with some sort of victory in Ukraine. So we are right now at a, a sort of real inflection point. This does not mean, by the way, that the West 
has to give up, right? The West could have a 1980s. The question is whether the West is going to have a 1980s or whether it's going to have a 1910s or a 1930s. This is true for every, this is true for all these countries. Is Germany, is, is China going to look like Germany in the 1930s or is it going to look like Soviet Union in the 1980s? Is the United States, Britain, Europe, are they going to look like Britain and Europe leading up to World War I, World War II, where they ramped down the military spending, where they have a lot of internal hesitancy? Or are they going to look like the United States did in the 1980s in which they ramp up the economy and ramp up their military power? That is a binary choice. The world, as we are talking about, is a very dangerous place. But there is something you can do to provide for the future. I'm talking about writing a will. Now, I know that sounds dark because whenever you think of a will, you think of like some lawyer in a room telling your descendants how your assets are to be. I get it. I get it. It's dark to think about a will. But here's the thing. You need to do it because once you do it, you're going to feel a lot better and your family is taken care of. You need a will from Epic Will. A will gives you the power to decide who's going to raise your kids if, God forbid, something happens to you or your spouse. Without one, the state decides. If something were to happen to you tomorrow, how confident are you that your belongings are going to fall into the right hands as opposed to somebody in the government telling you where your money should go or actually telling your family where your money should go? A will might be your only opportunity to direct important family heirlooms, financial investments, and responsibilities to the proper people in your life. Plus, it's incredibly easy and affordable with Epic Will. It only costs 119 bucks for a single person to create a will. When you use promo code Shapiro, you save 10%. Go to epicwill.com, use promo code Shapiro, save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com, promo code Shapiro. Again, epicwill.com, promo code Shapiro to save 10% on their will package. Also, as you know, The Daily Wire continues to take ground for the conservative movement in this country because of this. We are rapidly expanding our team. We currently have positions open on pretty much all levels, from entry level to senior level, all based in Nashville. If you're early in your career, but you have relevant experience, you may be interested in our social media content coordinator or production coordinator positions. Daily Wire is a fast-paced environment. We move as fast as the news breaks. If that sounds like your kind of thing, you will thrive here. It's a great chance to hit the ground running and take your career to the next level. So head on over to dailywire.com slash careers. View all of our open positions. Submit your application today. Okay, so we've looked at all of these historical periods where we are if history repeats itself because they're comps, right? I mean, these are comparisons. So we have to see kind of what comes next. If you are the West, there are two ways in which you endanger yourself. One is that you internally weaken yourself and the other morally, and the other is you internally weaken yourself in terms of policy. And so you saw both of these happen with the British Empire, right? If the United States' best comp is the British Empire because the last major empire that had this sort of global reach and span was the British Empire, then you have to look back at history and see why Britain lost control of its global empire. And there are a bunch of reasons. One, obviously, is that the idea was that the British Empire was overextended. But part of it was a feeling that had set in even by the late 19th century that Britain was losing its way morally, that it had lost its sort of feeling of we deserve to to have a global leadership role. Rudyard Kipling, of course, much hated by the left. He had a, a very famous poem from 1897 called Recessional. Neil Ferguson cites Recessional as Rudyard Kipling's best poem. And here it is. And it sort of speaks, I think, to where we are in the United States today. Because if we're talking about how we stand up to global challenges, whether we maintain our global position, we have to think about what sort of values we wish to promulgate. And this is a very serious question. This is why people on the right who have been pointing out that woking the military is a bad idea or that the social values promoted by the elite class in this country are not in consonance with traditional American values, they are not wrong. And this has real ramifications for the rest of the globe. It turns out that promoting constitutional rights and promoting Judeo-Christian values is not necessarily a bad thing. That, that that's not imperialism. That might just be decency. That if you lose that feeling, 
then what you're going to end up doing is destroying yourself. Here's Rudyard Kipling's poem, Recessional, from 1897, and it sort of speaks to this. It says, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding, calls not thee to guard. For frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. So again, that's a shortened version of the bummer. It's kept a couple of stances there. It's a little long. But the basic idea is when you forget God, when you forget your values, then and, and you rely simply on material power, you are likely to collapse, which is, of course, what happened to the British Empire over the course of the next half century. And in material terms, what you end up with is a moral collapse followed by an actual material collapse. Fast forward to, to 1969, and Philip Larkin has a, another poem called Homage to the Government. And uh, it, it speaks so much to what the United States is facing right now. Quote, next year, we're all to bring the soldiers home for lack of money. And it is all right. Places they guarded or kept orderly must guard themselves and keep themselves orderly. We want the money for ourselves at home instead of working. And this is all right. It's hard to say who wanted it to happen, but now it's been decided. Nobody minds. The places are a long way off, not here, which is all right. And from what we hear, the soldiers there only made trouble happen. Next year, we shall be easier in our minds. Next year, we shall be living in a country that brought its soldiers home for lack of money. The statues will be standing in the same tree muffled squares and look nearly the same. Our children will not know it's a different country. All we can hope to leave them now is money. And so you fast forward about 70 years and there's a direct correlation between loss of the values that Rudyard Kipling is talking about in 1897, for better or for worse, and Philip Larkin talking in the 1960s about how Britain had lost its empire because it had decided to look inward. So what is exactly is the United States going to do? And what is the choice? The choice is either you see yourselves in a competitive race with other countries for global dominion. And that doesn't mean you have to own other countries, but it does mean that if you wish to retain your strength at home and not have to face down the possibility of a rising empire like China, then you'd best strengthen yourself or you can weaken yourself both morally and economically. You can weaken yourself through welfare statism the way that Philip Larkin is talking about, or you can weaken yourself morally the way Rudyard Kipling is talking about and can look to your own material prosperity, which eventually degrades into this soft form of democratic social democracy that, that, you, see in, um, that you see in Europe. Well, it's pretty clear which way Joe Biden wants to go. The way that Joe Biden wants to go is he wishes to degrade us at home, both morally and economically. And this is a major, major problem. And this is leading to significant conflict inside the United States. So, for example, yesterday, Joe Biden had a tweet. And it seems like a small thing, but it's not. Joe Biden was tweeting out, obviously, he's targeting the so-called MAGA Republicans. By MAGA Republicans, these people who he labeled last week, threats to democracy, right? The real threat is not China. The real threat is not, is not Iran. The real threat is not Russia. The real threat is you. If you're a person who disagrees with him. And when I say, if you're a person who disagrees with him, I really mean that. Joe Biden has labeled people who disagree with him MAGA Republicans. And then he has labeled MAGA Republicans semi-fascists who are a threat to democracy. He did that last week in one of the worst speeches I've ever seen by an American president. So he tweeted out yesterday, because yesterday was Labor Day, quote, we understand something that MAGA Republicans in Congress don't. Wall Street didn't build this country. Working people did. Now this seems like silly pablum, right? I mean, it seems like, okay, fine. He's just doing his, his Bernie Sanders routine. But understand what he's actually doing in this tweet. He's doing a couple of things. One, he's labeling half of Americans the enemy. And two, and that has nothing to do with Trump, right? What makes you a MAGA Republican is apparently you think that Wall Street is important. And two, he's undermining Wall Street. Now, there are a lot of problems with Wall Street dependency on Washington. But let's get one thing straight. On an economic level, 
capital markets make countries strong. If you look back at that entire history of charts that I just showed you, the countries with the strongest capital markets dominate, dominate. Britain had the strongest capital markets leading up to World War I. And even between World War I and World War II, the two strongest capital markets on planet Earth were in London and New York. Those were the strongest capital markets. Pretending otherwise is stupid. Country, every country has labor. And when Joe Biden says Wall Street didn't build this country, working people did, that's just idiocy. I'm sorry. There's a combination of Wall Street investment and working people. You can't have one without the other. Labor without Wall Street means nothing. Wall Street without labor also means nothing. But to pretend that capital markets are not a massive factor, and indeed, the key driving factor behind the growth of an economy is unbelievable stupidity. And to label people who actually understand economics the enemy of the country, which is effectively what he's doing when he says they are MAGA Republicans, is ridiculous. Now, you can treat that as normal political rhetoric. But the fact is, if you wish to see a strong America in terms of economics, which means a strong America capable of doing what the United States, even if you're an isolationist, capable of doing what the United States did during World War I and World War II on those charts, on those charts where suddenly you see America's economic might transformed into military might. Boom, you see that chart where it just explodes America's military might? If you're ripping on Wall Street, the capital markets, the possibility of innovation and investment, of course you're undermining the strength of the country, which is what Joe Biden is doing right there. His agenda is the Philip Larkin agenda. Bring the money home, redistribute it, and don't grow. Well, there are real threats to that, international threats to that. We'll get to that in just a minute. There's more show that's coming. You're not going to want to miss it. We're going to talk about the, the Biden attempt to undermine America's strength, economically speaking, and yes, militarily speaking. If you're not a member, click the link in the description and join us. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 